Turn with me to John chapter 8. And uh, I want to look at this story that I think is familiar to us. But perhaps the Lord will give it to us in a fresh way. John chapter 8. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all of the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they did tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up, and he said unto them, uh, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. Well, again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had lifted up himself, he saw none but the woman, and he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, and sin no more. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray that as we look at it this morning, that you would open it up and minister to us. Lord, in a way that perhaps we need to hear it, it would... Set us free. Strengthen us in your love, in your work, in your ministry, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, to me, there is something, uh, and I think we're all of us are kind of this way. I love watching somebody that has mastered an instrument. Somebody there that whether, you know, comes up and can play a piano and, and just do it beautifully. I have no idea where middle C is on a piano. And yet, at the same time, I, I love listening to, like, great pianists. I've got a whole series on my iPod when I'm traveling. I'll put on just great concert pianist. And you just you envision, you're, you're just watching them play. I, I love it. Or a violinist, somebody who can pick up an instrument and just play it. And you realize they've mastered it. They've done it well. Or a craftsman or somebody that just does something. And they just seem to have a capacity where you realize you're watching a master do something. And yet I think, you know, of all of that, to watch Jesus day by day and to realize wherever he went and whatever he did, he mastered every instrument in the world. He mastered people. He mastered love, mercy, grace, insight, the knowledge of everything. I mean, obviously, God in flesh. I mean, the, the ultimate master of all masters. And, and watching Jesus work is just so inviting. It's so intriguing to, to watch him do something. And here in John 8, watching Jesus so masterfully take this woman who is caught in sin and set her free. In just but a few brief moments, something that is a horrendous issue within somebody's life, a tremendous amount of guilt and failure, something that the world looks at as absolutely hopeless, as devastating, as a crime that they should be stoned for, and yet here you watch Jesus in just but moments absolutely turn a situation around and to see one person's life brought entirely out of that guilt and set free. But I mean, to watch him you know, do these things is, is such a, a wonderful thing of watching his work. What a, what a master. This story in John chapter 8, it also kind of parallels the story to me back in uh, Psalm 124. It's a brief psalm, but let me read it to you. And it's a psalm that David writes as he's looking back at the children of Israel when they were in Egypt. And when it seemed absolutely hopeless, 
Pharaoh is after them. They had kind of been set free, but now they're coming before the Red Sea. And it just seemed now with Pharaoh right in his army behind them that they were doomed. But as David reflects upon it, he looks back and he writes in Psalm 124, he says, you know, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, now Israel may say. And then he, he repeats it, putting greater emphasis on it. He says, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, when men rose up against us, they had swallowed us up quick. When the wrath was kindled against us, then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And here in this, we watch there whether this one woman here in John chapter 8, of where God just incredibly delivered out of her guilt and out of her sin and out of her shame and out of her failures and moments, David reflected on how nationally there he, he said, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, the enemy would have swallowed us up quick. The waters would have overwhelmed us. We were done for. But yet he, then he gives this wonderful little insight there. He says, our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowler. Our soul is escaped and we're free. God just instantly, he came down, but he gives this illustration. He says, he says we were, we, God had let us free. He escaped us out of a, a snare of a fowler. And that's a one interesting insight that David has there as he kind of looks there at what was going on with the children of Israel, or I believe here the woman in John chapter 8. Because essentially, Satan in the Bible, he's referred to as a fowler, or an usurper, or a poacher. We're more familiar with the word poacher. It means the same thing as a fowler. But essentially, a poacher or a fowler, it's, it's actually a hunting term. Any of you that may be hunters, or you perhaps are familiar with the term. But it's one there that essentially what a poacher does, or a fowler, is if, number one, a poacher is somebody who comes on land that isn't theirs. They lay traps or decoys or food or bait or something there that they hide. They camouflage themselves in their, in their bait as best that they can. They usually are preying upon, when they're poaching, upon a prey that is not legal, that is, it's not in season. They use art of of complete deception in order to do it. And they also prey upon uh, the weaknesses of whatever it is that they're hunting for. So when you're looking at a fowl or a poacher, you, you get this picture kind of here, maybe a bunch of birds flying south for the winter, and as they're going along, they've been going there, they're, they're, they're tired, they're exhausted. They're hungry. They're looking for a safe place to stop and rest, get a little food, get a little shelter before they go on. And here a poacher or a hunter there, knowing exactly he studied his prey. He knows what's going on. He knows what he's looking for. He knows that they're coming south. He, he, he studied all of this. He's quite aware of all that. And he knows their instincts. He knows what the, their fears and their desires. And so he sets up this thing. He goes down. He gets himself a whole camouflage outfit he may be wearing. He gets himself, you know, a bunch of little duck decoys that he puts out in a the pond there, knowing that the birds will be flying over, hungry and tired and looking for a place to rest. He gets himself a, you know, a bird decoy, you know, noisemaker there that he hides himself over in the bulrushes and to attract the attention of the flying birds by. You know, they're upon the decoys he has set there. He'll, you know, be hiding in the bushes there or something. And as he sees them coming, you know, you or, you know, or whatever their noise is to get the bird's attention there. And they look down and see, oh, look, some of my buddies. Look at them. They're having a resting there in a pond. It's, uh, it looks relaxing. I'm tired. And they're preying upon all the instincts of the animal of prey that they're looking for. 
Uh, they Then the bird comes down, and there the poacher steps in, and he does his work, usually to kill him off. And, uh, but the interesting thing about Satan is that he's actually quite different than this in one sense. He uses all of those, ta- those tactics that a poacher would use upon human beings, but it isn't so much that he would kill us. His great desire isn't so much to kill us off, that is, immediately. It actually starts his greater work, perhaps. There's actually something he seems to love to do more than that. It's far more sinister than simply the kill. It's far more uh, driven it's, 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 and perverted than just simply, you know, hunting something down. He has another step. He has a greater work. But you see, the Bible calls him an usurper, a fowler. He's the master deceiver. The Bible refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren. And you see, once he can get somebody in his trap, once he gets somebody ensnared, and you know, whether it's a bird of prey that he's going, or he sets a snare there for a bear, or you know, some animal that he you know, goes out and puts a snare in and puts some fresh meat in it, puts some leaves over it, and then he goes, ties the other end of the snare you know, around a tree and just waiting for an animal to come and step in it and to ensnare them in that and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and to trap them. That once he, he, he's able to do that, it isn't so much that he might not kill them. Now he has another thing he does. That though he gets maybe that bear in the trap, and the bear comes in, steps in, and starts to move away, and now the snare, all it does is tighten around him. The more he tries to get away, the tighter it digs into his flesh. The tighter the snare actually gets around them, holding them back. So he can now, you know, now he's got his animal contained. Meantime, what happens you know, to, to us when we're in that situation? When we've been ensnared, when we've been caught, when he's pulled a, you know, a human being into this, you know, then the interesting thing about us usually when we sin or we fail and we realize we just got caught in something, that we have this in, incredible ability, I suppose just maybe like an animal almost, but first of all, there's great sorrow. We realize that we, sh- we, 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 we shouldn't have done it. But we there, and God, if you'll let me out of this, get me free. I promise you, God, you know, I'm going to try harder. I'll stay closer. I'll never, ever do this again. We make New Year's resolutions. We make promises. We make commitments on how hard we'll try, how good we'll do. God, if you'll just please let me out of this. I promise I'll never do it again, thinking that that may help. But actually, rather than helping, it does the exact opposite. You see, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 56, 1556, he says, the sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. Paul actually tells us there that Satan, he gets us there into this situation and even that, we've, that we put ourselves in by our own failure, our own weakness, our own vulnerability, the own de- you know, the deception that we got pulled into. But then once we're in it, we actually create our own self-inflicted law, a standard that actually just gives him more opportunity to accuse us further. God, please get me out of this. I promise I will never, ever, ever, ever do it again. You know, just get me out of this trap. I will be better. I have learned my lesson. Believe me, I'll never do it again. But you see, then what he now is able to do is he traps us in guilt. He gets us in there. He's got the snare around us. And, and, he, and he now is able to threaten us with perhaps his most perverted and wicked of all things. He threatens us with exposure. Now is the accuser of the brethren. It opens the door for him to do his great work. I, I have the evidence on you. I can destroy you. I'll tell God on you. I'll tell the world on you. 
I, you know, I know who you are and what you've done. And he has this ability to keep us sometimes forever under the power of that guilt. You see, the power of sin doesn't simply lie in its ability to, to get us to, in the act alone. There is something even greater uh, than, than the act alone. And that's the power to contain us in guilt and hold us in its grip. Sometimes and many times for the rest of our lives. I say the name John Hinckley, and immediately most of you would know. One day in that man's life, it's all we need to know. There is his attempt to kill Ronald Reagan. You say Charles Manson. And immediately one event, and yet forever the man's life, has been you know, known for that, that, that one experience, or hand, or hand. You can just say, take people, and many people, one event, one day, one time. And it wasn't just something that happened once. They're under the power of that guilt. For the rest of their life, and they've been exposed, and it's destroyed them. And here somebody can do something once, and yet they fear forever being remembered for it, forever being marked. And how we fear it, how we fight that, how we want to do whatever. You see, sin, somebody once said, is like seized candy. You know, a moment on the lips, forever on the hips, you know, they say about it or something. Well, sin, you can just do it once. And yet it's now it has this, this ability to accuse us. For the rest of our lives. And here's Satan now, once he gets somebody in it, his greater work, I can ruin you anytime I want. I'll destroy you with it. I've got the evidence. I've got the truth. I've got the proof. And I can just see here that with this woman in John chapter 8, who were the Pharisees, they're just simply trying to get Jesus. They don't care a thing about the woman, obviously. And, but here they're just trying to find some way to catch him. And they figured they'd actually worked out a tremendous plan. For you see, Jesus, on one hand, he'd been incredibly forgiving and merciful. The masses came out, huge numbers for his grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness and his goodness, so attracted to it, so responding to it. And yet at the same time, Jesus had said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I will not destroy. There won't be one jot or tittle of it not fulfilled. I will do it all. And well, they can't reconcile. They say, Wait a minute. The law... You know, it's something there that it, 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 you, if, if you honestly believe the law and live the law and fulfill the law, then how can you be so merciful and graceful to people that have broken the law? And they couldn't reconcile this, so they set up this perfect situation. They go and they, they get, get this woman, and it's interesting not to get distracted by it, but here they bring this woman to Jesus, and they said, we caught her in, act, in, 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 in the act of adultery, in the very act. Now, uh, you know, one of the things that, you probably may be aware of with adultery is it's one of those things that usually takes two people to do it. And they only found one somehow or another. Uh, but uh, where the fellow was, we don't know. Uh, they both had the same uh, uh, guilt upon them and the same thing to be done to them. But at any rate, they, they just bring her. But here is they, they bring this woman. They figured, we don't care what you do. Either way, we've got you, because either you're just saying, you know, when we tell you what Moses says in the law, that such a woman is to be stoned, what sayest thou? I don't think they cared what he said. They had him. Either he just says, I know, I know, I know, but you know what? She's such a nice young lady, and I, if we just give her another chance, and we, we just got to drop it and be loving and merciful, then they had him, because you, you said you'd fulfill the law. Moses said the one to be stoned. Or he had to show himself to be no different than they were, pick up a stone, and stoner. Either way, you pick the way it is, and now you're not this graceful, merciful, kind person. And they couldn't reconcile. He had to be one or the other, and so they, that's what was actually happening on their side of the equation. But what was really going on on Jesus' side of the equation is he just sees this woman in sin. 
This woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and you know, you can almost just picture it. There was probably two heel marks just dug into the ground all the way from her house, all the way through town, and she's just resisting, being drugged there to Jesus and just fighting. No, no, I won't go. I don't want to go. You know, and fearing death, feeling there, I mean, here's they're telling her, and essentially they're looking at her and says, woman, we caught you, and we're going to tell God on you. We're going to tell, you know, Jesus about you. We're going to let the world know about you. Time has come to let everybody know exactly who you are. And here this woman has just been dragged before him. Can you imagine her heart beating? Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine her eyes looking around and just seeing there what she envisions is the last moments probably of her life? And now as others would just take her down, she, you know, the, the law to be fulfilled, stoning to happen. And yet there, Jesus, they're looking at her and having to be the one perhaps to pick up the stone. And no doubt there with this exposure and being taught this and they have it been made public like that before Jesus himself. You, you, the thought is, you know, Jesus, he must hate me for this. He's got to be so angry. He's got to be at least so terribly disappointed. He must despise me. After all, he made the law. He fulfilled the law. He loved the law. He kept the law. And here I have failed in it. He's got to be so disturbed. He's got to just have this look like, what have you done? He's got to be so let down by me. But incredibly, what happens here, instead of bringing out his anger or his wrath, it brought out his love. It actually brought out an opportunity for him to reveal how great his love is. Because you see, the interesting thing about God and being God, one of the great benefits of being God is you see everything. You're aware of everything. Not just the mistake, not just simply the sin. He sees the whole thing. He sees it all. He watches there the fishermen. Any of you fishermen here? Not well, I've got a few fishermen. You can, that's no trick. I'm just asking. Nobody fishing. Come on. You've got a few fishermen here. You've got to be. But, I mean, he, if, you, if you're a fisherman, the, uh, well, actually, you're very devilish if you're a good fisherman. Because, essentially, you know, he see a fisherman goes, and he goes down to the, you know, to the sporting goods store. And I want the best pole, you know, pole there, and I want line that is as invisible as it can possibly be. As he gets the, you know, his fishing pole, and he gets his line, he gets his weights. You know, and he gets everything in his lures and all of that. And then he goes out one day fishing and he goes down to the bait shop and he turns there, you know, goes in there and he says, ask the guy, he says, what are they biting on? What are they going for? And, uh, and they, they fall in the shop. He says, you, you really want something? Yeah, I want the best you got. He says, come over here. Brings him over there and he opens up this little box of lures or something and he says, here. He pulls out one. And there's this little fish there, there, and it's just all painted up, and it's got glitter in it there. So when the sun comes down and bounces off, and there, it, you know, it's, it's got big red lips on it, you know, whatever else. And this little, and he looks over and he says, "This is what they're going for. We call her the Painted Lady. When she goes through the water, that sun comes off. Whoa! They can't miss her." All of a sudden, they just look there. And, you know, and even though maybe Mama told all those fish, hey, there's no such thing as a painted lady out there, honey. Don't ever. When you see a fish with big red lips, they don't exist. Don't believe it. Don't go for it. They got a hook. But yet, they're dumb. Dumb little fish out there one day going, there it is. You know, sees that painted lady, sees that thing glittering through. They never seen anything. And that poor little fish just goes on and just boom. And all of a sudden, the hook pulls in, takes grip on it, 
And here, next thing you know, the poacher or the fowler or the fisherman. Whatever it was, a master at his trade. He's now actually pulled them in. But from God's perspective, you see, he sees all of it. He sees every bit of it. He sees there the devil when he goes down, when he sets his craft, knowing the weakness of men, knowing the vulnerability, knowing what, they, what, what they're struggling with, knowing what's going on. He knows how to set the trap, lay the bait, knows how to make the line so you can't even see, and, and the hook, it's, 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 not, it's, it's unknown. You're attracted, even though there may be some little sense that I, this doesn't look right, still it has the ability to overpower and pull somebody into it. And, you know, interestingly enough, in, in legal terms, in our country, we actually call a thing like that entrapment. Actually, maybe some of you would remember a case a number of years ago, a fellow named John DeLorean. He made a car, the, the DeLorean car, poured all of his money in, got as many as investors, got very, very close to production with it. And when he was almost there, he ran out of money. Well, interestingly enough, the government, realizing this man was looking for money and basically, you know, exhausted all of the avenues of raising money, they actually sent some of, of, of our own government employees there and, and talked to him and let him know that they had some money they wanted to invest and that they liked his car and that they would want to put it into it and be go into a partnership. He, went, he was quite excited. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, they go all the way through the negotiations for it, and then in the last negotiation, when they're actually there with the cash, handing it over to him, they mention to him there in, in the discussion, by the way, we probably need to let you know that a lot of this is mob money, and which is a felony against the law. But here they led him all the way through up, through the whole process, and there at the last moment, while meantime, they've got the cameras, they've got the audio, the officers in the next room next to it. These, uh, You're a cop. You're one of these guys. I forgot about that. But anyway, we'll let that go for now. But the, uh, all of a sudden, so he looks there and he says, I don't want to hear about it. Don't tell me that part. But they told him it was clear, and then he took the money, and as soon as he took take the money, the doors burst open, in they come in and arrest him. It's a felony. Fortunately, our own government was something that they looked there and they said, you set him up. You knew his weaknesses. You knew his vulnerabilities. You knew how to get him. And you found him. You prayed upon him. They said, that, that, that is worse than what he did. And the anger wasn't so much against DeLorean. He was set free over the whole thing. They took the hook out, set him free. Here, Jesus, incredibly, you find him there when he sees this woman and he knew her. He knew everything about her. Maybe nobody else knew, but he knew there this young little girl growing up. Maybe they're wanting her husband or her father's attention, wanting, you know, just a boyfriend like anybody else, and on how he was able to set the hook or set the, you know, entrap her. Oh, here's how you show how you love me, and here's how it happens. Here's what I want. Here's what will make us both happy. Sets it in, gets the hook, pulls her into it, then drops her and leaves her, and on, you know, he goes to somebody else, leaves her there, and now she's brought into it again and again and again, looking for love, looking for fulfillment, looking for something. But he sees there on how this poor woman, oh, she sinned and she was guilty and she was wrong. But at the same time, I know that she had told, but, but, but she's caught. The hook's been set in her long ago. She's been drugged all over the ocean, all over the, the lake, trying to get free, trying to get it out. But there at the same time, it's power. Will not let her go. And the wonderful thing here is that Jesus, he looks at all this, seeing all of this, instead of it bringing out his anger or his wrath or his judgment, he looks there in mercy and in love. And there's nothing that delights him any longer than to be able to come to this poor woman to take the hook out and to set her free and to be able to say, go, 
Sin no more. You don't ever have to bite into this again. You don't ever have to be drugged around by it. You're a new creation. You're forgiven. I give you a fresh start. I'm breaking its power. You see, Jesus, there, I mean, as He loves to do this, this great work. And here's somebody there that, but he actually, he had two projects, by the way, to do here. One was not just simply forgiving her. Actually, forgiving her was easy. That was, he, he, that was already done. He knew on the cross, I'm going to the cross, where he was going to die for all the sins of all the world of all time. Forgiving her sin was the easy part in one sense. I mean, it cost him his life, the hardest thing ever. But at the same time, not the most difficult thing today. What was important to him were her, her accusers. What was important to him was not just simply being able to forgive her, but also to get rid of her accusers so that he could look there and set her. She wouldn't be free until he could say, Woman, where are thine accusers? You see, the interesting thing about sin is that uh, you maybe know the old hymn written by uh, Charles Wesley, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. It's a great and wonderful song. But in it, the, the oh, four thousand tongues to sing, our great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. The fourth verse of that is one of the most powerful and insightful verses, I think, in, in a hymn. Because Wesley writes and he says he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. You see, what Jesus does is, is that he, it's not just simply forgiving sin. But it's, it's even a greater work than that that he wants to do. And that is he can break the power of canceled sin. You see, you can have sin in your life that you know has been forgiven. You know Christ died for it. You know his blood has been shed for it. But yet you can still be under its power. You can still be under its guilt. You can still be under its its, its threat of exposure even though you're forgiven of it you know you're loved you know you're forgiven but yet there's this threat out there where it still holds the power of you though it's been canceled but wesley says he can break the power of canceled sin he sets the prisoner free you see jesus here he now his task was to get rid of the accusers to get rid of those that got the woman and came down and wanted to see her life destroyed and had the evidence on her and ran and, and, and that, that's what the work. And here is they come to him and they said to him, now Moses said in the law that said she'd be stoned. What do you say? Jesus stares at them for a moment. And then he kneels down and he wrote in the sand. Now, basically every expositor through history has pretty well agreed what they believe he wrote. We are not certain on it because we're not told. But the, the virtually unanimous opinion of it was is that there Jesus just could look up at each man. And the Bible says that Jesus gave himself to no man, for he knew the hearts of all men. He knew everybody. He could look at every one of them. He knew everything about their life. Everywhere they'd been, everything they've done, and everything that's going on. You, you can't forgive all the sins of the world if you don't know them. But at any rate, here Jesus, whether he looked up and he sees Joseph there, and he sees Levi or Jaime or Matthew or whatever their names might have been, and he writes them down. And as he writes them down, they look at him, wow, he knows the name. Interesting. But then it says there that then, then he, they keep on badgering him, so he writes some more. Perhaps he wrote adultery. Perhaps he wrote theft. Perhaps he wrote gossip. Perhaps he wrote liar. And then he looked up at Joseph. And then he took his finger by the name Joseph, and he drew a line over in the sand there, you know, to adultery. And then maybe he looked up at Levi, and he put his finger there, and he went over to lie. And as Jesus could look into the heart of any man and give him a stare that only God could do. As he looked at him and the man, they're obviously aware. It says, from the eldest to the least being convicted of their own sin. Their own conviction. 
I mean, one by one, it's quite a, you'd love to see, I don't know, there are videos in heaven, I'd love to see this one. You know, it says from the eldest to the least. Why the eldest to the least? Because the older you are, the more sin in your life, period. We can discuss that one forever, but pretty given. But at any rate, here, we're all sinners. But here as he looks at somebody, there, he looks at the oldest, and then he draws it down, and all of a sudden the oldest says, you know something? <laughs> I forgot. I promised Mildred I'd bring her home a loaf of bread. I forgot it. You guys take over it. All, you got it. He peels off. And one by one as he looks at them, each one goes until they're all gone. They're all gone. And there he is, as one by one, his great project wasn't just simply dying and forgiving. It was to be able to look at somebody and to say, you're free. You're free. You see, I wonder how many of us here today, maybe right now, the guilt of, 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 of canceled sin, it still is over us. It still contains us. It still controls us. My grandmother, she's a wonderful grandmother. She loved him. But the sad thing to me, all my memories of her, you know, she died in the 70s. But here, my memories of her, she was never really a happy woman. My grandfather was a happy man and very loving, but, and she was loving, but just never knew us happy. It wasn't until actually she wrote a letter that was my, my mother and my aunt got there that, that just days before she died that she wrote a letter for them. But in this letter, my grandmother wrote out something that my mother and aunt had never known. And very simply put, uh, my, her, her father, my great-grandfather, in a little town in Iowa, they lived in this town, he and his wife, and they had two children, teenage children. And uh, he was actually, all we know, he's went to church, don't know anything about the church. I actually have a Bible with his name in it, and uh, it has been passed on. But they went to church, and he was also some form of a city councilman. But while my great-grandfather, married to this woman, having a couple children of his own teenagers, he has an affair with a woman in town, a married woman. The woman gets pregnant. When her husband finds out about it, he leaves never to be found again, just disappeared entirely he had they had two children of their own and so here this woman now that my great-grandfather has this affair with now she goes and has this child my grandmother and then when my grandmother is born when she is we don't know how many months old but still very young the mother dies and here in an incredible act of grace or mercy my great-grandfather's wife, who had been sinned against by this affair with this woman, her husband had run away. She had now died. And here this child has been born that's his child. She not only forgave him, she took the child in, my grandmother, and adopted her as her own child. Not only did she do that, but the two other remaining children that were left after their father had run away, their mother had died, she didn't adopt them, but she took them in and raised them as her own as well. When I was a little child, I met them, and I just knew them as uncles and great-uncles and aunts. Well, then to make matters worse, my grandmother, now she grows up in this home. And as she grows up in this home, being loved and taken care of, she meets a young man in town, my grandfather. They fall in love. And he was a success. They had owned my, my, their name was Morrison. And uh, they, her family owned the Morrison Glove Factory in town. They were uh, somewhat successful. They owned the first car in town. That's all they kind of know. But at any rate, they uh, had uh, this, this family in, in, in town. They, they meet each other. My grandmother and grandfather fall in love, are going to get married. But in the process, my grandmother gets pregnant before they're married herself. 
Now, what they did back then is basically the family just gathered you know, together, had a wedding very quickly before anybody would know the issue. And then, and then my grandmother and grandfather move out to California and they, they, they go start a business and move west. And then when it came time for their first anniversary, they celebrated it as their second. My aunt, meantime, being born, but making her look and appear legitimate to all the world. They then, for the rest of their lives, spent every, every anniversary. When it was their ninth, they celebrated their tenth. Their twenty-fourth was their twenty-fifth. Their forty-ninth, they celebrated as their fiftieth. And there they lived under this deception their entire lives. And here is the, and, and never, they, 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 they escaped at all, they thought. But yet, at the same time, here they lived under this. My grandmother, meantime, my mother and aunt, my mother first, and then she led her sister, my aunt, to Christ. And then they lead their, their grandmother, my, my grandmother, to Christ. And though they prayed with her and read the Bible, that there was always something there they never quite understood. And she loved the Lord, and she was growing, and they would go visit her day by day in the home that she was in. But here, a couple of days before she dies, they come and they find this letter with this entire story written out, asking for their forgiveness on what she had done to their lives because of their sin. The guilt that she had by her birth, as she supposed it, and now the guilt, you know, that by taking them away from their relatives, their grandparents and uncles and aunts, and having to run into having to hide, fearing exposure. And here is then, they saw this, this letter and it said, do not open till after my death. Well, my aunt, my, mother, my grandmother, my aunt and cousin, my mother and aunt realized we need to read this. So they read it. And there as they read it, what do you suppose their, 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 their response was? Rather, were they angry? Were they, were they frustrated? Their heart, they just began to weep. They just cried and cried. They hold, held each other. And then they went to her and they said, Mother, we love you. We love, and here to think of somebody's entire existence on the planet, on one hand forgiven of sin, but held, but contained under its power, under its guilt, the fear of his exposure. How many lives are like that? How many people there has the enemy been able to set up and bring into something there? And, and perhaps there's some of us, you know, there's something if it came out, it's found. What would occur? What would happen? And to realize somebody you can live for 50 years, be on your deathbed until finally you must tell somebody and perhaps ask for forgiveness, not realizing that all along Jesus comes and he says, I want to, I want to take the hook out. Forgiving you is easy. Setting you free from your accusers. Setting you free to where you realize there that not only he, break, he breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free how he wants to come to each one of us, take it out and say, fly, fly, go live, go run again. I saw the snare, I saw the trap, I saw it in and it's contained you long enough. Jesus looks at us and he says, I love you. And he isn't angry at us so much because he sees the entire picture. His real battle is against the devil. His real battle against Satan there where he went to the cross and so he could destroy the power of sin and guilt. Sin, death, hell, and the devil. He could take them all down and look at his redeemed and say, you're free. That's his, that, 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 that's his great task. Many years ago when one of my sons was quite young, the time he's out playing in the neighborhood... And but he comes home and his wives are you know, my wife realized something's agitated. There's something wrong. I just kid, you know, whatever. You know. No, there's something wrong. He, she sensed this. And so we kind of end up with a little. What's wrong? 
And, and then finally, after some discussion, realized something was wrong. It ended up come out, and he'd just been a couple doors around the corner. And while he was around the corner, a fellow, he'd come to him and asked him if he wanted to come into his house. Okay, came into his house. Just, just a little boy. And well, the fellow's got all this, a whole bunch of pornography. It's all laid out on the floor, and he's showing all of this to my son. My son is looking at all of this, and somehow or another, he had an awareness, something's wrong here. He felt terribly guilty. He, somehow or another, he said, I've not, I shouldn't be here. And where this fellow was going to go with it, we don't know for sure. And, you know, but here it was just enough that my son, they're feeling this terrible sense of guilt and agitation. He goes and he leaves and he comes home and he's just kind of pacing around. And then you know, the thing is, he just felt terribly guilty. He just felt this is sin. You know, somehow or another, he picked that up. And he's there agitated. And here is, we finally get down with a discussion on the thing. And okay, what is it? And finally it comes out. What do you suppose my response was? I'll tell you what I did. I don't suggest this, particularly to, with a police officer around. But I, the father took more and the side of me, I suppose, would dominate a little bit. Because I said, come with me. And I said, I want you to show me the house. He took me out around the corner and showed me the house. I noted the address. And at the time, I was a chaplain for the police department in town. I called the police department and I said, this is who I am. You know, they, they knew me and I, and I said, I just want to let you know I'm about to walk out my front door when I hang up here. I'm going around the corner to such and such an address where a man has tried to take my, my son into the situation of pornography. I'm going to go over and handle this. I knew, you know, that there might be a merciful cop that wouldn't do what I wanted done. I don't know. But at any rate, I, so I, I said, here's the address. I'm going to hang up and go out. Now, I suggest... That you send some officers to that house and you send them soon. And I told him, if you're having any problem finding the house, just look for the one with body parts in front. That's what I said. And whether I should have or not, I don't know. That's, that's not the issue today so much. But the, I went out. I walked right in that door because I wanted to know. And sure enough, there all was out on the floor. I saw him. He wondered who I was. I took him out in the front lawn and ministered to him. A little bit. And in the, but here is this, as this is occurring with me, you see, what had hit me on this thing was in my son to think, he's in guilt. You did this to him. I, I, I loved my son. I care. What, what do you think you're doing? Fortunately, the police showed up quite quickly. Sirens all over. <laughs> Chaplain McClure, how are you today? Oh, fine. How are you? You know, <laughs> what's happening? The guys, he's trying to kill me and stuff. He's going on there. And I said, just walk in there. They walked in and looked at it and took him off. And the legal situation did little, but it did some. But at any rate, I let him know if I ever even see you on my street again, you even come around that corner, you get near my children. I was angry, not at my child. I wanted to see him free. I wanted to see this will never, ever happen again. And you know, when you look there, maybe you got ensnared. Maybe something happened. And you think God must be so angry at you. He's got to be so hostile. But rather than bringing out his anger or his wrath, he looks at you and he says, I love you. You're my child. I always loved you. I watched you get ensnared. I watched the trap. I watched it all set up. I saw the, the vulnerabilities. I saw the, the, the whole thing and the weaknesses and the struggles. Now, on one hand, we need to take full responsibility for our sin. We need to come and realize, Jesus, I repent. And I ask you to forgive me. But on his side of the equation, he looks there and he says, I do. Completely. He loves setting prisoners free.
transforming lives. It's the greatest work in all of time and eternity to take somebody out of guilt and shame and set them free and say, live. You're free. And perhaps some of you today, you're still living in guilt. He's reduced you to hiding or seclusion with areas of your life. But to realize He looks at you. And what you really need is like an old poem, a touch from the Master's hand. The poem says, He was was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth its while to spend much time with the old violin, but he still picked it up with a smile. What am I bidding, good folks, he cried. Who will start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, who will make it two? Two dollars. Who will make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, and going and going, but but no. For from the room far back came a gray-haired old man, and he picked it up with a bow. Then wiping the dust off the old violin and tightening the loosened strings, he played a melody as pure and sweet as a caroling angel sings. Well, the music ceased, and the auctioneer, in a voice that is quiet and low, he said, Now what am I bidden for the old violin? And he held it up with a bow. A thousand dollars, who make it two? Two thousand, who make it three? Three thousand, once, three thousand, twice. And going and gone, said he. Well, the people cheered, but some of them cried. We don't quite understand what changed its worth. But quick came the reply. I was the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune who's battered and scarred with sin. He's auctioned cheap by the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game. And he, he travels on. He's going once. He's going twice. He's going. And he's almost gone. But the master comes. And the foolish crowd still can't quite understand the worth of his soul and the change that is wrought. By a touch of the master's hand. And today maybe some of you. You feel auction cheap. But the Lord looks at you. And he says I want to dust it off. And tighten the strings. And I can play a melody as pure and sweet. As an angel sings out of your redeemed heart. Your forgiven life. And set you free. That you may no longer be under its guilt. And its power. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, how we thank you. This is who you are. Lord, how I wish with all of my heart I could go back to my great-grandfather and talk to him. I could go to my grandmother. I could go to my grandfather many, many years ago and tell them I love them. Tell them, Lord, your word that they didn't know. To see people, Lord, that you love for their virtually their entire lives caught. And yet, Lord, you're not angry at them. They're your children. You love them. It's the enemy who has set them up. That you long to take down. and That you long to expose. You see it all. And Lord, I, I pray today that maybe you would help some of us. That may be living with struggles. Maybe living and still under the power of canceled sin. Maybe some of us, it's never been canceled. We need today to open our heart and say, Jesus... Do you love me like this? Will you forgive my sin? And even as we're closing, as we're praying, perhaps some of you would say, I need that. I need my sin canceled. If that's where you are and you want to open your heart to Christ like that and realize today who He is and how He loves you, I'd like wherever you are, just lift your hand up and put it down and we'll pray for you. 
there any of you today, God forgive me, God bless you, and you and a number, a number of hands around others. And perhaps some of you even under canceled sin, you re, you're, you're a Christian, you love the Lord. And yet still there's these fears and there's this guilt. And today you say, Jesus set me free. Perhaps that's you too. You lift your hand up and down before the Lord and then we'll pray. And then we'll pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you. Many hands. And Lord, all of us, Lord, all of us. Anyone says they have no sin, the Bible says is a liar. God is not in him. Lord, of course we have sin, but Lord, I pray that if any today that needed forgiven for the first time right now, they could open their heart and say, Jesus, come in and forgive me. And Lord, perhaps others that they sit here and yet, Lord, they're, they're like somebody caught in a snare. They want to spread their wings. They want to fly. They want to go and grow. And yet something holds them back. Fear of exposure. Lord, I pray that today you'd set them free. Lord, you'd help us to understand how great your love is. Jesus, do your great work today. Not just simply the dying on the cross. And Lord, I don't ever use the word simply as if it was simple. It was the greatest act of all time and eternity. But yet, Lord, even after you've done that, there are people that don't comprehend or they live in fear. And Lord, then to be able to come and set us free. Lord, I pray that today as we would leave and you would say to each one of us, where are thine accusers? Lord, may each one of us be able to look at you and say, I don't have any anymore. I'm free. Lord Jesus, may you do the work that only you can do in each one of our hearts today. We ask it, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.